welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, the podcast that features conversations with writers of all types. Today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by The Craft Studio. With locations in New York City, on the Upper East Side, and in Tribeca, The Craft Studio is a perfect place to bring your kids for some crafting fun. CraftStudioNYC.com. I'm thrilled to be talking to Jean McCulloch today. Jean is a former managing editor of the Paris Review and a senior editor of Tin House. She was the founding editorial director of Tin House Books and is the co-founder of Todos Santos Writers Workshop. Her work has appeared in the Paris Review, the New York Times Book Review, Vogue, O Magazine, Allure, the Northwestern Review, and other publications. I'm talking to her today about her amazing memoir called All Happy Families, which really everybody should read. Uh, she lives in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm thrilled to welcome her today. So welcome, Jean. Jean? Yes, very good. Very good. Um, I'm so excited to be doing the podcast with you today. Thanks for coming. Me too. Um, so for readers who don't, who have not read All Happy Families yet, can you tell them what it, the book is about? Yes. Um, the memoir begins in 1983. It's an August weekend near the tip of Long Island in East Hampton, New York. And it is the weekend of my wedding. What would very quickly readers will note because it's in about the third page, is that simultaneous to the wedding preparations taking place, my father has just had a stroke, and he is lying in Southampton Hospital on life support. So essentially what you have is two families that are coming together for one event, i.e. a wedding, that being my family and the groom's family, and it very quickly is turning into a completely different event. My mother was convinced the wedding should go forward. I think she was tired of my father derailing things. I should say he had a stroke that was caused by abrupt alcohol withdrawal after being a lifetime alcoholic. She had told him he had to sober up for the wedding if he wanted to be there. And so she said, we're going to go ahead with this. So it sort of opens on a weekend that had sat in my mind for decades, literally, and I hadn't known exactly how to tackle it uh, in terms of a memoir, and it took me a long time, needless to say, to do that. Um, and it, it then progresses, and it goes into that weekend, but not only that weekend, also the repercussions from that weekend in both families. And that's the course of the book, basically. And you do such a great job of really painting the backdrop of the story. I feel like the Hamptons and your home there by the sea, that was like another character in the book almost. And I'm just going to quote from, you wrote, The gardener Vincent in yellow protective earmuffs and a fishing cap drove his seated mower in even rows up and down the sloping lawn as he did every morning of the summer, this day steering around the large white party tent erected earlier in the week for the reception. I just felt like that sentence was so perfect. Like, you can just see it. You can see the lawn. You can see the house. You can just, you put the reader right there. Um, so why did you decide to write the story? Like, why now? Well, um, I have a two-part answer to that. Okay. The first, on a technical... I'll take both. <laughs> on a technical level, I had written an essay. I'd been commissioned to write an essay for an anthology called Money Changes Everything that came out about 10 years ago. And the uh, editor, Elisa Chappelle, who had commissioned it, had seen my house in East Hampton, my family's house. 
she and her husband, she had been a colleague of mine at the Paris Review and then later at Tin House, the literary magazine we both went on to. Um, she had seen the house, the whole staff from the Paris Review had stayed at my house one weekend when we had been celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Paris Review. And so she, she knew that this house existed. She knew that my mother had given this house a name. And I think she was fascinated by the notion that people actually lived in houses that had been given <laughs> names. So even then, the house became a character in not only our imagination, but in other people's imagination because it had a name. So I wrote the essay, and it was the hardest essay that I've ever tried to write. It took a long time. The reason being, she wanted me to talk about, to write about what it was like to grow up in that world, which was sort of a um, esoteric world. Mm -hmm. it, it was a slice of life that not everybody sees. And yet at the same time, it was for an anthology about money. So I was trying to figure out how to write about having grown up in a big house by the sea, where despite the outer appearance of beauty and glamour that one might put on the house by seeing it, very real things were happening inside, and, and quite a few of them were not exactly happy. So I wrote the piece. It was in the anthology. An editor read it and offered me a book contract to expand it. I did what I had always told my own writers, because I've been an editor most of my life, never to do, which is to accept a book contract when you have no idea what the book is actually <laughs> <laughs> going to be about. So I, I merrily said, oh yes, sure, no problem, and I sort of could see it. But then when I actually sat down with the essay, I thought to myself, well, I said everything I want to say on this topic, and I feel comfortable saying on this topic in 5,000 words, there is no way I'm going to expand it. So it, I, I dithered about that for a long time. Um, and during the time I was dithering, I was changing jobs, I had children to raise, and the editor who had assigned the book had left and gone to another house. So a lot happened such that sort of the heat was off in a way, but finally it was no longer off. My editor had landed at HarperCollins, the book was back on, and that also had the advantage that I had taken a long time to really figure out how I wanted to write. The, and then it start, I would say it started with an image. It started with the image of me up in my mother's bathroom on the wedding weekend, and I'm in my wedding dress, and I'm looking in the mirror and I'm brushing my hair. Outside the window, I can hear people being seated in the garden below, the string quartet is playing. I can hear distantly the waves on the shore. And suddenly I hear in my mother's bedroom her dialing her little princess phone. I hear the click, 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 click. And I thought, who could she be calling at this moment? I'm about to go walk down the <laughs> aisle with my half-brother because my father was in the hospital. And I heard her at that very moment say into the phone, She it's, it was clear she was calling the hospital at this point, she said, put me on with the doctor that's going to be on call tonight. She got on the phone and she said, if anything happens to my husband tonight, do not call his house. We're having a party. 
And I never got over that, as one can imagine. And the next thing I heard was my half-brother knocking on the door saying, it's time, and he was there to take me down to get married. And that had haunted me, and so I thought, okay, let's go from there. Let's just write that scene and see where it leads. And so I picked a 20-year arc, basically, to write about. And I very much wanted it to begin and end in the same location with a 20-year span in the middle. It begins with my mother walking into the water to have her morning swim the morning of the wedding. And it ends 20 years later with me in front of the house at the exact same place, seeing the house for the last time. We had sold it, and it was under demolition. It had only been demolished from the inside at that point. So there were still shards of glass in the windows. And that's the final scene of the book, is me seeing it for the last time. And it ends with the sun setting. It had begun with the sun having just come up. And as the sun is setting at the end of the book, it is reflecting in the last shards of glass that are in the window. It's reflecting red. So I end with an image that had been an image I had my whole childhood, which is Every time at that time of day, the sun set on the windows and the windows turned this beautiful burnished rose color. I would imagine that every room of our house was filled to the brim with roses. Oh, it's so beautiful. So I was able to begin the book with the image of me that had haunted me in my wedding dress. And I ended with an image that had also stayed with me my whole life and is still with me, which is of the house filled to the brim with roses, which... I felt was such a metaphor for family life. And in that way, the book really did allow the house to become a character. Wow. In that so much, in any of our houses, so much family life takes place over long periods of time. Everybody has their own memories. Everybody has their own images that they take with them. And therefore, when the house is gone, it's not as if a chapter closes really. It's as if everybody just takes those memories in their own heads, and this was an opportunity to write down some of mine. One of the added lovely benefits of having published this book is that people that read it who did know me then, and I just gave a reading out at Bookhampton in East Hampton, so I I had a lot of the hometown crowd Mm -hmm, were there mm -hmm. that I hadn't seen in years. Um, everybody comes forward with their own memories. And they'll say, oh, yes, I remember your mother with the cigarettes, or I remember the little cigarette lighters, or I remember that ceramic cabbage where we hid the pot on the coffee table and she never knew it was right there in front of her face. That kind of thing. Wow. So. Well, that's beautiful. By the way, you just listening to you talk, you it, you're, you should be like a storyteller. You should just like go around and like hire you to read my kids' bedtime oh, I would love to. You're so, it's like I just want to listen to you talk all day. It's like <laughs> such a great anyway. Thank you. Um, so I really first of all, when you just said how you started the book with your mother going for her morning swim. Yes. When I first opened it, I thought for sure it was going to like circle back and something terrible was going to happen on the swim. Just yes. so you know. But yeah. so there's like, like that element of like, what's going to happen on her swim? Wh- you know, what's coming next? So yes. you're like immediately uneasy. You probably did that on purpose. Well, you know, I did and I didn't. It's interesting that you cite that because when I first was writing the book, I teach a workshop down in Todos Santos in the winter. And we have a faculty reading every session. 
So I read the very beginning of the book. That that they were sort of my dry run, mm -hmm. you know, the, that I read them little passages every year. And um, I read just the beginning, the first three pages. Yeah. And uh, afterwards, a lot of people came up to me and said, so did your mother commit suicide? Yeah, that's sort of what I was thinking. And so I thought, okay, so the next page I'm going to say, later that afternoon, she pinned the family veil on my head. So it's very clear mm -hmm. in the first chapter that, in fact, no, that's not what she was doing. She was taking her morning swim. But I... In, in so doing, and then adding that last bit about she put the veil on my head, it also meant that I was going to encapsulate in the first chapter the fact that she called the hospital and said that. Yep. And that was a lengthy discussion I had with my editor a few times because she said, you really want to divulge that that early on? And I said, yes. I tried not to. I tried to put it at the end of the first section, which is where chronologically it doubles back to. But I actually felt like it needed to be right there because otherwise people are going to be distracted by what you just mentioned. Uh, it obviously worked really well. <laughs> Thank you. Good call on that one. <laughs> um, so I really loved in the book how you talked about wealth. I know you said it came from an anthology about money. I feel like a lot of writers or books, it's not ever addressed straight out the way you did and you you told it in such a way you didn't even have to say it right like the social register books aligning the bookshelves and all this stuff um and how you used to lie about your address which yeah. is literally across the street from where we are right now and you used to say um that inherited wealth could be a birthright a genetic twist of fate as random as say red hair or a disposition to drink was a notion i distrusted how much was real and how much was illusion and how might the perception of money make any one person different from anyone else these were the question i pondered questions i pondered uneasily as a child as i lied about my address then you say, so money, what of it? A long gray shingled house by the sea, a bonfire lighting up the night sky on summer evenings, a softly lit tent where guests danced in late summer. Does the postcard beauty of these scenes suggest that beautiful times were more beautiful for my family than for others, or terrible times more terrible? Our lives might have looked pretty because the backdrop looked pretty. Certainly, it might be less inspiring of empathy than of cynicism. I'm almost done, by the way. It might be all those things, and that's fair to assume. But like alcoholism, despair is an equal opportunity condition, and the daily human struggle to escape its grip knows no boundaries of wealth or class. Early on, I understood that a mansion by the sea can just as easily be a jail cell as a dreamscape. It's so compelling. I mean, Thank that's you. like amazing. Um, it's such an amazing description of growing up that way, and there's this whole feeling of, you know, are you too lucky to be sad? Are you too lucky to be depressed? Right. Are you too lucky to have strife? So can you talk about this sort of juxtaposition of wealth and sadness and the added, the added, you know, not burden, but the added expectation that wealth means you can't be sad. Right. Well, that was exactly what had, that, trying to get that right was the struggle that I had in the original essay, which of course was about money. Right. And my whole thesis in that essay was bad stuff still happens. And in that passage that you just read, and thank you, I loved listening to you. <laughs> yes. I, mean, you I would like you to be the reader uh, <laughs> instead of me. Um, I also talk about how our neighbor, one of my earliest memories was that our neighbor swam out to sea and was trying to kill himself because his 
beautiful checking account and his beautiful wife and his beautiful house did not make up for the despair that he felt inside. So early on, that's how I recognized that a big house by the sea can just as easily be a jail cell as a dreamscape. But that is a tricky notion to sell to people for obvious reasons. It's a tricky notion, even though my own children, I'll use them as an example, they did not grow up in that house by the sea, but they have early memories of that house by the sea. And of course they were little and it was idyllic to them. Mm -hmm. And whenever they talk about it still, they have trouble. They look at that and they say, what a great place to be a kid. What a great place to have parties when you were a teenager because now yeah. that they sort by that. Right. <laughs> and yet they know the story. They know that backdrop. So there's even in my own children's mind, it, there's a failure to compute there. And I get that. Um, I wrote that passage, particularly that passage I struggled with in the book because I knew that there, it would be all too easy for somebody to read my book and do a not read very deeply in it, just to read it, and in the back of their mind they're thinking, poor little rich girl, mm -hmm. cry me a river. And I thought, okay, we, when we write memoirs, we are given our stage set, right? This was my stage set, this was my life, and this was the story I wanted to tell. So that's already a given. Then I put the players on the stage as they were. Mm -hmm. I put the situation on the stage as it was, and I let it play out. If we take away that backdrop, if you imagine it as a stage set, mm -hmm. and we put in a different one necessarily, but the lines are the same, and the situation is the same, maybe we'll take out the gardener, but you know what I'm saying. Right, right, right. Um, it's a story of a very human family event right? It could be anywhere, but it's distracting sometimes to have the stage set that I had. So that is where that comes in, that kind of tension. Yeah. And also what I felt is my responsibility as a writer was to really tell the story and get past the stage set, even though one has to acknowledge its, its presence and that cynicism might be a place that people would go before they would get to empathy. I get it. Yeah. I wrote this um, this short essay on Easter, which I don't even really celebrate, but my in-laws were here and the kids were dying the eggs. And it's just one of those really hard days and I was like crying in the bathroom. And I was like, but this bathroom is so pretty. Yes, right. <laughs> and I, so I wrote this essay like, too lucky to cry on Easter. Right. Because how can I cry? I have like these beautiful kids and this nice life. And um, I wrote it and I got such great responses from so many yeah. people because on the outside, a lot of, you know, you can't, you know, right. we don't have to fight for food or, right. to, you know, but that doesn't mean there aren't issues going on. Right. So, very, anyway. very profound issues can so. take place no matter where you are. That's true. That's um, very true. So your father's alcohol, let me just shift away from this sure. now. Um, your father's alcoholism played a big role in the story, um, and you talked about his bad days and the remorse he would feel, the Budweiser's he had for breakfast and how it impacted you. Um, and you said, even as an adult, the child of an alcoholic forgets how to speak or more accurately loses the belief that their words have any power to make a difference or to matter. It was part of the strategy of retreat that we learned early in childhood to master. Um, so can you tell me a little more about how it shaped you growing up with your dad's alcoholism or when you even realized your dad was an alcoholic or different than anybody else's dad? Well, 
Um, and this actually does go directly back to the last thing that we were talking about. Um, I, I feel as though one of the uh, things that people see as a benefit of wealth, this would be my father who inherited money, is that you can sort of choose the life that you want. You don't have to go do a job that you might not like. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> In his case, too much free time was not a blessing, mm-hmm. and too much free time can be uh, greatly overvalued. <laughs> and I, I believe that the alcoholism, there were many reasons for his alcoholism, but I do believe the fact that he had a lot of time on his hands, and yet he was this intellectual genius. He was, uh, he spoke 14 languages. He was fascinated by language, the different verb forms. He had little index cards with verb declensions piled up by his feet as he was studying a new language every year. But also he was in our living room in his PJs in the middle of the morning with verb declensions by his feet and a can of Budweiser on his breakfast tray. So what is wrong with that picture, right? I think it takes a child a while to figure out that that is not normal. Mm -hmm. You can figure out very easily that everyone else's parents are going off to work and yours are not. Mm But how that translates into the fact that his life had taken on sort of a, um, a force of its own in the grip of an addiction is a lot, it takes a lot longer. I remember anxiety as a child about like birthday parties, would he show up and embarrass us? We adored our father, but it was as if there were two fathers. There was the lovely, funny, charming one And then there was one that was a bumbling oaf. And that person sometimes showed up at birthday parties and scared children and upset parents. And there were stories that I would hear, you know, from other kids in my class about him at parents' meetings. There was one famous one where I guess he spoke up very eloquently in the middle of a parents' meeting about the way he disapproved of the way that French was being taught at our school. And then... When he went to sit down, he fell off his chair. So it's like right there were the two parts of my father. And I heard that from a kid at school the next day, right? Because the parent had obviously been talking about it and the kid had heard it. So then you're, you are very aware of it. You're very aware of it, and yet you have no idea what to do about it, and you retreat into the background. In my case, I think, I think now I couldn't never have articulated this then. But I think the combination of the family dysfunction that comes with not knowing at any given point which parent is going to be there, Mm -hmm. um, and social protocol, which I grew up in an environment where children were to be seen and not heard, Mm -hmm. not completely, but in in a certain way, you know what I mean. The, the, The decorum was there. The combination of those two things... Um, made a child retreat into the background. You lose your voice because nobody's asking your opinion and nobody's going to hear it anyway if there's a distraction of somebody who's in the grip of alcohol. So when I looked back at this story, all I could think to myself, and my husband from that time now, my ex-husband, 
Every time I had seen him over 30 years, he also said, why didn't we stop this wedding? How did we let it go forward? It took me a long time to realize that was all a part of losing my voice at that time. I literally did not feel that I could say, stop. I don't want to blame that on my father, but I do think that the adult child of an alcoholic struggles with things that were imprinted from an early age in terms of discrediting yourself, sorting by other, never sorting by self, because the other is so theatrical. And if you add to that social protocol, that's another big theatric that's going on, right? My mother's mantra, we will get through this with grace and style, if it kills us. That's mm -hmm. what she would literally say. If it kills us, the grace and style comes first. That's the priority. So I had those things in juxtaposition to just growing up. And ironically, becoming a writer, becoming an editor. As an editor, it's easy to coax stories out of other people. It's not always easy, but that's your job. And it becomes a privilege to do so. One can relax into that job more easily if one is used to being in the background mm. and watching other people's lives sort of unfold before them without having a voice. It's, it's very natural, for me at least, I don't want to speak for all editors in the world, but for me at least, it was a natural progression to then go and help other people tell their stories and love doing that. I still love doing that rather than write my own. Wow. It took me a long time to hear my own voice, to let myself hear my own voice. And I bet your mother, not just with the protocol, but there was you illustrated her personality so well in so many ways, and I could identify different things about different people I know in the way you talked about your mom. But <laughs> um, you know how uh, I loved your scene with, with the automatic pat, how someone had called her pat and not um, by her last name, and she, you know, she freaked out about that, and how she used these foreign accents too, and um, you know she. Uh, she seemed to be a force to reckon with as well, you know, yes. especially when she wouldn't give you um, one of the dresses when you were up in the attic at yes. the end of the book. And, yes. oh, I don't want to give anything away. But I don't think it's giving anything away. But anyway, you wanted a dress, and she was like, no, no, I'm going to keep it. And you're like, yeah. Mom, you're never going to wear this dress. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I feel like maybe was it just, you know, the combination probably. I mean, do you feel like you've worked on on your relationship with your mom in addition to your dad, or you think it was a combination? or? Well, now I'm, I'm just like, I'm like being your family psychologist today. I'm that's sorry fine. to be no, so no, personal. No, no, no. I should talk to her about I'm, the book. I'm, I'm delighted. I was I'm like, delighted <laughs> to have you um, guide this that way. Um, no, I think with my mother, one of the most important ingredients for me in what I needed in writing this book, I understood her a lot more when I became a mother myself. And even as well, with both my children, my son and my daughter, but particularly my daughter, as she started to get older. And I started to think about ways in which mothers always want to protect children and do the right thing, but of course, we're all fallible, right? We're people, too. And in order for me to really understand my mother, and in a way, let her off the hook, even though she's no longer walking amongst us on the planet, I had to see it through her eyes in the closest experience I had, which was being a mom myself and knowing ways in which I was fallible. And we're just all trying our best. And in that way, I think I understood her motivations were all, for the most part, coming from a place of 
doing what we all do as mothers, which is we're lionesses if we feel our cubs are in trouble or if we need to guide them in one way or another, right? That's mm -hmm. where we got fierce. And she became fierce. But she was also a very imperious person, although she had a deep insecurity within her that came from her childhood. Her inner child was not a happy person. Her inner child felt abandoned. And, you know, that was... I. I can draw a direct line from that to the scene you're citing where she wouldn't let me have that dress. There, her inner child deep inside her, I don't want to sound like Psych 101 here, but that inner child was saying, mine, right. mine, you can't have it, it's mine. Even though she was in her 70s when we had that conversation, right? She literally was never going to wear a beautiful silk dress again. Didn't matter. It was hers, and she wanted it. So... That kind of thing took me a long time to uh, be at peace with. She was also, you know, there was a side of her that was just a lot of fun, particularly as we got to be teenagers. She was a lot of fun. My friends all just adored spending time with her. You know, we literally would all sit around and gossip and smoke cigarettes with my <laughs> mother and drink diet soda and do all these <laughs> things that people weren't doing at home they right, did right. with my mother um <clears throat> but there were also ways in which she was you know there's always those parents that everyone else says your your mother's so cool and right. your friends yes. will say ha, 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 she's not your mother right. you know yeah so there was that too <laughs> there was that too but she was such a larger than life character the writing about her on one level was very easy and on another level it was very hard because I did want to get all those very different aspects of her on the page to the extent that I could. Your memory about her, I mean, I you the scenes were so crystal clear. Did you write did you keep a journal or do you do, do you just have an amazing memory? <laughs> well, some of some of the book I did actually write down a lot of it mm -hmm. at the time particularly the second section, which we haven't spoken about, which takes place up in Maine, and it's yes, my... Yes, that my, was also amazing. My husband's family, mm -hmm. my in-laws, and it's all about a holiday, a week yeah. up there, a Christmas week up there. That I had all written down at the time because it was... I did feel like I was watching theater in a way, uh, and I, I think it has that quality in in the book too that it was like a scene was unfolding and I was watching it and mm -hmm. then my mother would call in and then you know it would be very meaty because my there would be this disembodied voice calling from the upper east side of Manhattan going what are they doing now you should be home for Christmas you shouldn't be up there with that blah 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 anyway I did write all that down but in terms of my mother so much of it was so imprinted in me and in my friends mm -hmm. i mean they'll say now oh my god the fact that she called everybody dearie and you have it all in there or friends yeah. will say i was one of the ones that made the mistake of calling her pat and i got in trouble you know that kind of thing uh that that did happen but i do think there just in terms of process of writing a memoir I do think there's an element of um, having a literary seance in your head sometimes. And towards the end of the book, there was something missing. And it had to do with my mother, and I, I couldn't get it yet. Because what was hard about her character is because she was so imperious and because she was so bossy, it's very easy to make her one-dimensional. I knew she was not one-dimensional. So there were, were two things I actually added towards the end of the writing process, and uh, both of them come out in the third section of the book. 
One of them was I was straining to hear something that she said. I knew there was something she said in that attic scene, which is also the scene you cited with the dress, um, that changed the coloration of the wedding weekend for me and allowed me to let her off the hook. And I was walking my dogs one day in Brooklyn, where I live, and I suddenly heard her say in my head, I heard, um, I remembered the voice saying, I wish I could have been a better mother to you the weekend of the wedding, but I was numb. Now, it's not like I hear voices. I don't want to sound that way about it, but I think when you're deeply involved with a character that you're writing about, sometimes something like that will make itself known to you if you've been with the material long enough. Mm -hmm. And I literally tied my dogs up and took out a receipt that I had in my pocketbook and wrote down that line, and I thought that was it. And that was one. The other one was, which you, I know you've, you've mentioned to me in our lovely emails back and <laughs> forth. Um, at the end of that attic scene, we go downstairs, and we're looking out the window, and it has cleared from being a gloomy, rainy day. And she said, you see, I told you you should trust your mother. I told you it was going to be a perfectly glorious day. Mm -hmm. And I repeat that line at the very end of the book. But at the same time, she grabbed my hand and she squeezed it four oh, yeah. times, was, Yes, which was an old childhood game of ours that four times was, do you love me? And the squeeze back was three, yes, I do. And then she would squeeze two times, how much? And then I would crush her hand. And then I would do four times and she'd do three, then two, then one. That was another thing I, I remembered very late in the process. So I think, again, there's, there's certain things you remember right away. There's certain things that you have written down. And yet, mm -hmm. there are also these things that you just have to be very, very patient, and they will come. See that, you know, the other trick of memory. When I read that in your book, I literally was like, because <gasps> I had forgotten. I used to do that with my mom all the time. And it had, I, had, I don't think I ever would have remembered that. And it like brought tears to my eyes because you remembered it. I remembered it. It's like this whole great oh, little Oh, well, circle. now you're bringing tears to my eyes. Uh, I'm so thrilled that it could have no, um, it's true. triggered it's like, that for you. I, I couldn't believe it. I wanted to like go call my mom, but <laughs> I probably should have. <laughs> um, so what did the rest of your family think about you divulging all this information about your family? I think you thanked them uh, what did you say? In the acknowledgments, you said. In the acknowledgments, you said, uh, you know, it's never easy to have a writer in the clan. I get that. We each have our own version of events. Um, thank you for giving me the space and the respect to tell mine. So, how did how did everybody in your family respond to this? Just wondering. Um, well, I haven't actually talked to absolutely everybody in my okay. family, but I was keenly aware of my two sisters, my mm -hmm. full sisters, not my half siblings. Um, because they really were the ones who shared our mother, mm -hmm. obviously. Yep. It's not my half-sibling's mother, it's our mother. And also, who had, they are the two that had grown up with my father. Right. right? Our half-siblings saw my father on occasions and lived with us for the month of August every year, but that was not the same thing as growing up mm -hmm. with our father as an alcoholic. So I was mostly concerned about my two sisters. I was concerned about everybody, but particularly those two. And I said to both of them, when I you know, finally sat down to write the book and realized this, I was going to write about mm -hmm. this particular weekend, I said to both of them separately, when I just happened to see them, um, look, I'm writing about this, and we all have our own versions of this story. Our father died. 
I just would like to tell it from the perspective of the bride that weekend. So that's my story. And I sent them both the manuscript. I sent them both the manuscript and my husband, Dean, my first husband, mm -hmm. Dean, the manuscript before I sent it to my editor and my agent because uh, it really mattered to me that they be okay with it. Um, and with both of them, uh, I one of them wanted me to, she said, I don't really ever use that expression. I'd really like you to change it. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Yeah, if, you know, that's what I remember, but you know better than I. And, mm -hmm. you know, and the other one, I changed the, I mean, her her complaint was so esoteric and so much my father's daughter in terms of language. I had changed the last name of one character from Mahoney to Montgomery. And she said, you cannot change an Irish name to a Scottish name. <laughs> I said, is that really your only complaint? Because I'm not going to stop the press. That. And that really was her, that was the one thing she, she thought was wrong, that I'd gotten wrong. Um, my, now, Dean, my husband, I did talk to him, my ex-husband, at great length because I very much wrote about his family. Yes, you did. And I have not seen those people, mm -hmm. most of them, for a very long time, as in 30 years, long time. And I finally decided that I was going to change the name of the family, the last name and all of their first names. And he said, well, okay, but if you're going to do that, can I stay Dean? So I said, yes, you can stay Dean. But in the thanks I give him at the beginning of the acknowledgments, I use his initials because I know that whether he cares about it hugely or not, his family might, mm -hmm. that I not use their proper last name. So... There, there are different ways in which one tries to be respectful. I haven't heard from everyone in my family, and there might be people that are unhappy with things. I hope, if that's the case, that they'll know that I'm very approachable and I can talk about these things. But they may choose not to. I don't know. I know I've been on both sides of this as someone who's been in the literary world for as long as I have been. I have been a loosely based character in other people's work, and in one case, not loosely based at all. Hmm. Um, and there are different ways in which I think about that, but I think what I finally, at the end of the day, can say in a general way is, as long as something isn't written for a malicious reason, if it's really written in the name of art, in mm -hmm. creating a story, a real story, then I can go with that. I can live with that. If it is malicious, that's something else again. And there was one case in my life where somebody wrote something because basically they wanted me to know something, but they didn't want to tell me. And that, that I don't admire. No, that's not good. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, but, you know, in that way, one has to be respectful, and yet one has to tell their story. I feel as an editor... I um, talk to a lot of my writers and other writers, friends who are writers about this over many, many years in terms of what is your strategy, how do you approach family in these matters. It obviously isn't always lovely to have a writer in the family at all. Um, and I got different answers, but the one, the one thing that seemed to be the general truth in all of that and the take-home for me was you cannot let that stop you from telling your story. Whatever footwork you have to do to go to various people and talk to them about it, if you're going to tell your story, you're going to tell your story. And that was sort of the way I proceeded. 
I knew it was not going to be easy. Right. And it's also not easy when things are being reviewed because you obviously can't control the media and the press. And, you know, there was, you and I just spoke about one treatment um, in the New York Post I was very unhappy with because I thought this is disrespectful to my family. Um, it's not really the subtlety with which I hope I have come to the material, but it was the New York Post. And that kind of thing you can't control. You can do damage control and call up the people that might see it. But that's, that's what you do and that's part of the job. That's part of the, the privilege of having your work published, even though a privilege can sometimes, as we know, go both ways. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so are you going to do, are you going to write another book or what? Yes, 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 yes. I'm, um, already, uh, working on one idea that I have and can you give any more than that? (laughs) Um, not not really, not, not yet. Okay. Not yet. Really. Um, it's, it is again, memoir material. Excellent. (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, right now I'm, I'm worrying, uh, sort of on the level of what we've been discussing in terms of privacy and whatnot, I'm, I have, I'm thinking a lot about that, about uh, I don't want to, uh, to break the anonymity of some of the people that are involved. So I am just beginning, in my mind, to construct the story, and we'll have to see where it goes. But I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Yeah. Me too. Now. Oh, good. I'm so <laughs> glad. I'm I'm delighted. Um, well, thank you. Thanks for letting me pry into your. Oh, it's your, been a pleasure. The, the, the inner details of your family thank life. Thank you. And, uh, you. You've been the really. Book. You're a gift as a reader. Oh, you really, thank you. really are. You know, you, you you bring so much. You get so much of the nuance and really thank you it's been a privilege to have you read my book oh that's so sweet (laughs) (laughs) all right well thank you thanks this episode of moms don't have time to read books has been sponsored by the craft studio craftstudionyc.com studio nyc.com